I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today, I'm speaking with security researcher and self-described recovering hacker, Alyssa Knight, the author of a recent report examining the security of mobile health apps and application programming interfaces. So Alyssa, your research doesn't name the mobile health apps that you've studied, but in general, can you give our audience a sense of the types of health apps and APIs you examined and what you assessed? So the ecosystem of mobile health apps is is obviously quite broad. And this is, of course, not talking about telemedicine or the other ecosystem of apps. It's specifically mobile health apps. And the apps that I looked at include patient-facing apps, meaning that the patient logs in and can access their records like pathology reports, x-rays, basically all of their, their patient information. And secondly, the apps that clinicians actually log into to manage their patients and the health of their and the records of their patients. So I wanted to examine the apps on both sides of the chain. So, you know, both patient facing and clinician facing apps. And I do want to mention uh, several of the apps that I tested actually were for hospitals as well, not just mobile health companies. So what were some of the most common problems and weaknesses that you identified involving these mobile health apps and which sort of weaknesses were the most worrisome and why? I would probably say the BOLA vulnerabilities, and that stands for broken object level authorization. And for your audience who may not know what those kind of vulnerabilities are, uh, I have a great analogy. It, it would be like you and I going to a cocktail party and you checking in your Burberry coat and your Burberry purse, and I want your Burberry purse, I want your Burberry coat. You get handed a ticket from the coat check for number 18. And I come up behind you, I'm given for some reason, ticket number 17. I go in there with a Sharpie and I change the seven to an eight and I wait a few hours and I go back to the coat check and I give them my new ticket, which I've turned into 18. And they give me back your Burberry coat and your Burberry purse. So that's very similar to, it's akin to a bull attack. Bull of vulnerability is I'm authenticated to be there, right? I'm, I'm, I should be at the party. I've got a ticket. I'm authenticated, but I'm not authorized to actually take home your Burberry coat and purse. But the coat check person is trusting me that because I have a ticket, I must be the owner of that ticket and that Burberry person coat. So an API is very similar with the bull of vulnerability. You're authenticated, you're allowed to be there because you have a JOT token or whatever it may be, but you're requesting the data for another patient. And so, you know, if I'm ID 1001, I change the object ID to 1002. I'm now requesting pathology reports and clinician reports for other patients, specifically 1002. So were those issues in the health apps similar to the APIs? In other words, you know, for instance, the Department of Health and Human Services is promoting the use of the Fire API for people to be able to access their health records using smartphones. Is what you looked at, is there a variety of different APIs in the various apps? What did you look at when it comes to the actual mobile apps versus APIs and what sorts of APIs? So great question. So the, the, I looked at both the mobile apps as well as the APIs. So the first thing I started out was with was doing uh, what's called reverse engineering the mobile app. So I downloaded the apps off of my phone onto my workstation for me to reverse engineer them and reverse them back to the source code to find hard-coded keys and tokens in the apps. Basically API secret information, URIs, stuff like that. Once I was able to find that, and I found over 114 
API keys and tokens hard-coded in the apps that I could then use to attack the APIs with. After I was done with this, what's called static code analysis, I moved on to targeting the APIs. And the APIs, really the back end of those mobile apps, I also tested. And I looked for things like BOLA vulnerabilities. And what was systemic across all of the APIs I tested, and much to your point, I tested multiple APIs. What was systemic across the, all the APIs was the ability for me to request data from other patients or other clinicians. So I would log in with a clinician account and I would be assigned only certain patient records. I then reached out and grabbed other patient records that didn't necessarily get assigned to my clinician login. And then I logged in as a specific patient for a hospital's mobile app. And I was able to request not just my patient records, but also the records of other patients that were, that had checked into that hospital. So it's uh, much to your point. It's not endemic to just one mobile app or one API. It's, it was across all of the APIs that I tested. What seems to be at the center of these problems? Is it the way these applications are being developed? What sorts of moves are needed to address these issues? I think it's developers understanding the idiosyncratic distinctions between authentication and authorization. Yes, the APIs are properly authenticating the client and the individual, but they're not authorizing them. Meaning that just because you're authenticated, it doesn't necessarily mean you're authorized to see it. It's very similar to classified documents with the U.S. government. You know, you may have top secret information or you may have secret clearance or top secret clearance, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're authorized to see all classified data just because you have that one clearance level. It's it's very similar to authentication authorization in, in our space where you may be authenticated, but you, you're not authorized to see all patient records or all clinician records. That's the best analogy that I can give you. But I think the problem here is multiple things. Number one, obviously not using solutions like Approve, who sponsored the research, to make sure that the communication going to the APIs is in fact coming from the authorized mobile app. So I shouldn't be able to just load up an API client like what I was doing and, and communicating directly with the APIs. Had they been using a solution like Approve to be able to say, hey, look, you know, I'm only going to accept traffic from this specific mobile app that we've authorized to communicate with our APIs. The other thing is, is of course, secure, things like secure code training for developers to write better, more secure code. Performing penetration testing of the APIs so making sure that we hack our own code, hack our own APIs and mobile apps to make sure that, you know, before it goes into production, that it's secure against these different types of tactics and techniques that adversaries might use. So Elizabeth, that said, as I mentioned, and, and as you surely know, the Department of Health and Human Services has really been pushing the ability for patients to more easily access their digitized health records via smartphones and APIs such as Fire. What is the danger if some of these issues are not addressed? And what should healthcare entities and, and health app vendors keep in mind as they try to comply to HHS's regulations, but keeping an eye on doing more than maybe just the basics in order to keep unauthorized access or other sorts of security breaches from happening? So with the smart fire standard, it's best practice recommendations around security, right? So they can't make you secure it in any particular way. It's just 
really a framework for you to develop your APIs around, right? So each and every company that implements a, an API based on the FHIR standard is going to have in different forms of, of integration with it, right? Or, or have implemented it different ways. It's really just a, a guideline or standards framework. So if an API, if a FHIR API is not hardened correctly, if it's not secured properly, you have access to whatever that API is serving data for. So it could be, you know, like I said, pathology reports, x-rays, allergy information, all of your health information that can't necessarily be as easily resolved if it's breached by sending you a new card in the mail, right? You can't undo things like your health, health history, uh, which is why it's worth so much on the dark web. If that's not properly secured, that is what an adversary has access to, all of your health data. Now, one company may implement the FHIR standard, that FHIR API, differently than another company. It's If you go to the smart FHIR, the smart website, and, and read up on it, there's really just very little information on how to actually secure that implementation, that FHIR API. There's very little guidance around it. You're really kind of left up to your own devices on how you secure it, how you implement it. And again, it's going to be different than the company down the street. So with that all said, if these issues are not addressed, what do you foresee happening? What is the risk to patients? What are the risks to healthcare entities and clinicians and you know the data that they're supposed to be protecting for these patients? It's again, the, that data ending up on the dark web and, and the fact that it's, it's worth a thousand times more than a credit card number. You know, each individual PHI or patient record, protected healthcare information, each PHI record is worth over $1,000 on the dark web. It's because it contains so much sensitive information on you. Your social security number addresses health information. So if I know you're allergic to bee stings and I wanted to kill you and I wanted to make it look like an accident and I fill up your house with a bunch of bees, I downloaded that data from the dark web and got all the information on you that I wanted to get. There's obviously all kinds of scenarios, dark scenarios that you could come up with if, if somebody who shouldn't have your protected healthcare information gets their hands on it and they want to do damage to you. If personal synthetic identity fraud, right? That's a lot of PII. It's enough to definitely open a credit card or get a mortgage loan or what have you on in someone else's name and someone else's identity. It's, it's all there. And, you know, some of the patient records that I was able to access that didn't belong to me included family information and DNR information, people that should be on the, your emergency contact list. So it not only just contained the patient's information, but other information of family and friends. PHI is rich with information, sensitive information on an individual and possibly even their family members, which is why it's worth so much. You know, it's a lot easier for a bank to replace a compromised credit card and send you a new one in the mail. It's another thing for someone to try and replace your health information or replace your health history. So, and when it comes to these sort of security incidents and potentially accessing other people's records that somebody that someone shouldn't be able to access, are there dangers also that once someone gets into these records, it could be a vector into the enterprise system of a hospital? Are there dangers that, you know, this could morph into something even bigger? That's another good question. So the, the types of attacks when you're, when you're, Requesting information you're not authorized to get from an API, you're just grabbing data and collecting it from the backend database. It's not necessarily a shell or remote access into the internal hospital network. That is a different other class of vulnerabilities, like what's called remote code execution. 
the vulnerabilities that I discovered in the mobile apps and the APIs was unauthorized access to data, right? So, and if you think about it, there's an API in front of everything in today's connected world. We're in an API first economy. As a matter of fact, Akamai released a report where they said over 80% of internet traffic flowing through the CDNs today is API traffic. That means that more than half of the traffic on the internet is no longer human to application traffic. It's application or device to application traffic. And hackers know that. So they're shifting their attention to data is worth more than oil. And hackers know that and they're after data. It's all about monetizing the data that they steal. And if they know that most of the world's data is protected behind APIs, what are they gonna do? They're going to shift their attention to learning how to hack APIs. It's gotten to a point now where they really, because of APIs, they really don't even need internal access to the hospital network. They really don't need internal access into the ML company. All they need to do if they're there to steal data is figure out the vulnerabilities in the APIs which are facing the internet. And a lot of organizations are running not, not hundreds, but thousands of APIs facing the internet. And a lot of organizations don't even know how many APIs they have. A lot of organizations don't know which APIs are facing the internet. So, you know, it's really important that we use solutions like Approve to authenticate and authorize the traffic that's communicating with our APIs. Finally, briefly, any other research that you're working on right now, examining security of any other sorts of products that people should really be paying attention to? My vulnerability research has always been really around black boxes, around embedded systems. So uh, this year, I'm actually focusing on hacking connected trains and super yachts. So I'm, I'm definitely going the uh, planes, trains, and automobiles route, if you remember that movie with John Candy. But so this year is going to be a really interesting year new, of new research. I, I'm really excited about hacking the train. Uh, so I've been contacted by uh, multiple state and, and states and cities about hacking other vehicle transport, passenger transport vehicles like trains and boats. Wow. Everything's connected these days. Well, thank you so much, Alyssa. I've been speaking to Alyssa Knight. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.